Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 43, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and subscribe to us and get our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and from the zenith of the Wonder Wheel. Hmm. Well, this is a very special one that was requested by our friend D. Ron Murphy. Um, he is a uh, prolific blogger, but I don't think he has an active one at the moment. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at D. Ron Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-R-E-E. Yep. And he wanted us to discuss Daredevil issue 161. Uh, this, come, this came out uh, cover dated November 1979, written by Roger McKenzie. Art by Frank Miller, with inks by uh, Klaus Jansen, colored by Glynis Ween, lettered by, lettered by uh, Diana Albus, uh, edited by Alan Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Cover was by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen, and it went for 40 cents. Yeah, not too bad for a mm-hmm. uh, pretty packed story. So Certainly. we'll kick it off like we usually do with some uh, creator bios, and uh, of course we probably have more information about the artist than the writer in this case, which is unusual, Chris. But uh, <laughs> yes, it is. It's uh, it's we'll see why pretty soon. Uh, so Roger McKenzie was born November eighth of some year. He says in an interview, <laughs> Lil Raj was a classic comic book nerd from about 1957 or thereabouts. DC superhero stuff: Superman, Batman, and then Julie Schwartz revived the Flash, Green Lantern. Hawkman, the Atom, and the Justice League. But then one day, on the, there in the spinner racks was a new comic, something called the Fantastic Four, and I was a Marvel madman from then on. In an editorial for a magazine called Charlton Neo, Roger elaborated, that was the very first Marvel comic book I bought off the spinner rack way back down the, that road I've traveled. Fantastic Four number five, to be exact. And it changed my life, literally, and my road. And this is actually John Byrne's first Marvel comic as well. That's right. That's he cites mm-hmm. this. The, this is the first appearance of Doctor Doom on the cover. There. That must have. It must have really just drew everyone in. You know, that was the, the breaking out moment. Certainly, certainly. Uh, Mackenzie's first comics work was a seven-page short story titled uh, Ground Round in Vampirella number 50. That was uh, April 1976, cover date. Uh, he actually sent that script in unsolicited. And then a few weeks later, he received the check. Wow, can't Imagine do that anymore, that. kids. Yeah, don't, don't send in <laughs> your unsolicited scripts anymore. No, no. And he would write stories for Warren's black and white magazine titles, uh, Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella, from uh, 76 through 82. He started working at DC Comics as well. He created the Western character Cinnamon, uh, first appeared in Weird Western Tales, number 48. That was September, October 1978, cover date. And uh, several stories for the uh, company's horror titles as well. Uh, Mackenzie and Miller's fr- for Frank Miller's uh, first collaboration was on a two-page story titled uh, "Slowly, Painfully, You Dig Your Way from the Cold, Choking Debris." That's a nice title. Pretty snappy title, yeah. <laughs> Rolls right off the tongue several times. 
<laughs> that was uh, published in DC Comics, Weird War Tales, number 68. Uh, that was uh, cover date October 1978. And th- those always had sort of weird <laughs> titles yeah, like often, that. Yeah, exactly. You know, yes. choking and sputtering. In As the I lay yeah. dying. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of note, he also wrote uh, Welcome Back, Carter, uh, number nine. That was, uh, that was from 1978, and that would win him 17 Eisner Awards. That's right, exactly. It's his best-known work. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mackenzie would become the writer on Marvel Comics Daredevil with issue 151. That was March 78, cover date. Uh, he imbued these stories with a dark tone reminiscent of his horror writing. Uh, Miller would join Mackenzie on the series, starting with issue 158. That was uh, May 1979, cover date. And uh, three issues later, here we are. That's right, right on this very issue. So we'll talk a little bit about Frank Miller, who... I don't know if everyone even recognizes him as an artist anymore, but... Uh, I know it, right? That is that is how he got his start. He was born January 27th, 1957 in Olney, Maryland, raised in Montpellier, Vermont, the fifth of seven children to a nurse mother and a carpenter electrician father. He had an Irish Catholic upbringing, if the uh, seven children didn't give you any clues. <laughs> uh, a letter written by Frank to Marvel was published in The Cat Number 3, April 1973. He came to New York City to show Neil Adams' portfolio. Neil recommended him to Gold Key. His first published work was Art for a Story in Gold Key's The Twilight Zone, number 84, cover date June 1978. But his first credited work was in Weird War Tales, War Tales number 64, June 1978, titled Deliver Me from D-Day, written by Wyatt Gwyan. Jim Shooter remembers Frank petitioning DC after he'd gotten, quote, a small job from Western Publishing, I think. Thus emboldened, he went to DC. And after getting savaged by Joe Orlando, he got in to see the art director Vinnie Coletta, who recognized talent and arranged for him to get a one-page war comic job. Miller did no one-page stories for DC Comics at this time. Likely Shooter is referring to the two-page story Frank penciled for uh, Weird War Tales number 68. Uh, that was The Day After Doomsday, written by Roger McKemsey. He also drew a six-pager by Paul Kupperberg, and that was the greatest story never told in the very same issue. Yeah, Frank uh, drew a five-pager titled uh, The Edge of History, written by Elliot S. Magan in Unknown Soldier, number 219, September 1978. Uh, Frank's first work for uh, Marvel would be penciling the 17-page story The Master Assassin of Mars, Part 3, in John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 18. That was uh, written by Chris Claremont with a cover date of November 1978. From here, Miller would become the regular uh, cover and fill-in artist. Uh, he drew uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, numbers 27 and 28. That was February, March 1979. Uh, those were written by Bill Mantlo and also included uh, Daredevil as a guest star. Uh, Daredevil's solo title wasn't selling very well at the time, but Frank thought the character had great potential as a blind character in a purely visual medium. That's a uh, way with the words there. Yeah. Uh, Miller petitioned his mentor and guardian angel, Mary Jo Duffy, for a shot at Daredevil, and she, in turn, put a bug in the ear of the editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. He wound up getting the job. Frank recalls, When I first showed up in New York, I showed up with a bunch of comics, a bunch of samples of guys in trench coats and old cars and such, and comic editors said, Where are the guys in tights? And I had to learn how to do it. But as soon as this, as a title came along, when Daredevil artist Gene Colan left Daredevil, I realized it was my secret in to do crime comics with a superhero in them. And so I lobbied for the title and got it. Which brings us uh, pretty neatly into the book we're going to discuss today. That's right. Uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about the history of the character Daredevil. 
Now, there was a first Daredevil, I don't know if everyone's aware of, that debuted in Silver Streak number 6, September 1940. This one was created by Jack Binder, but it was overhauled a lot by Jack Cole, who really often gets uh, the real credit for the character. Done by Lev Gleason Publishing, this is the outfit best known for publishing crime does not pay comics that uh, eventually drove Dr. Wortham crazy and, you know, blah, we went into all that long time ago. Uh, in his first appearance, uh, Daredevil, a.k.a. Bart Hill's origin, was that he'd been rendered mute from the shock of seeing his father murdered and took up sling- slinging a boomerang in homage to the boomerang-shaped scar left on his chest. Uh, he was burned with a hot iron in the same incident where his father was murdered. Yeah, by the uh, second issue, things changed. Only his name and penchant for boomerangs remained. He was no longer mute and, in fact, was uh, pretty chatty, uh, slinging quips and barbs with the best of them. Uh, In the debut, Daredevil wore a bodysuit split into two colors, uh, blue and yellow, vertically. In the second appearance, uh, this was Silver Streak number seven, the yellow was changed to, (laughs) like, like 3D glasses. He was red. Yeah, and I bet it was because the yellow just didn't look right, you know, probably looked... Uh, Yeah. Probably got washed out right in transfer yeah but i just love how like you know there's not even any attempt at continuity here you know it's like the 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 origin has changed and the entire character's changed by the second issue like they had no no feeling that you might have successive uh, copies of this comic yeah roy Uh, thomas could have written a 47 50 30 300 uh, (laughs) issue story in between those two appearances yeah yeah right exactly (laughs) explaining everything that happened Uh, So Daredevil, he continued to be featured, this early Daredevil, I mean, in Silver Street Comics until issue number 17, covered in December 1941, and then he got his own very soon after his debut, uh, beginning with Daredevil Battles Hitler, number one, July uh, 1941. Byro, Charles Byro, rewrote Daredevil's origin on issue number 18, cover date August 1943, now depicting Daredevil's real identity, Bart Hill, as having been raised by Aborigines in the Australian Outback. So that that was a switch. Uh, due to the due to several publishers having used the character without being contested over the years, this Daredevil is actually in the public domain. So you can go right ahead today and start making your own Daredevil comics if you like. Yep, uh, he actually got someone pregnant in an issue of Savage Dragon. Really? Uh, yes. He showed, he showed up a lot of, over the years too. I mean, you know, AC yep. Comics. Uh, I guess you're saying Image fooled with him. I mean, Dynamite. Yep. Dynamite had him. Yeah. I mean, everyone's tried. So. If you are, if you have a hankering for a Aboriginal guy with a boomerang scar on his chest, bisected costume, and a spiked belt, here you go. Here's your man. Here you go. Uh, but make sure you don't use the Daredevil we're going to talk <laughs> about. Who we're just going to call him the uh, real Daredevil. Uh, he debuted in Daredevil number one. This was 1964. He was created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett, with a bit of input by Jack Kirby, who uh, came up with the idea that uh, Daredevil should carry a billy club. Uh, young Matt Murdock of Hell's Kitchen, New York City, is blinded by a canister of radioactive material that fell from a truck when he saves an elderly man from being hit. Uh, that that uh, that uh, radioactive stuff also made uh, four little turtles. That's right. Into, Turned uh, into uh, teenage mutants, as I understand. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a story for another day, Chris. <laughs> it is. Now, this, this also gives him a radar sense that allows him to navigate obstacles and... Uh, Kind of, you know, quote-unquote, see shapes with precise accuracy. Uh, a very recent volume of Daredevil did uh, used some really nice uh, visual cues to show what he could see. It was, yeah. Uh, Are you talking that about was that Chris, Chris Samney, I think it was. You know, I, I, I was going to get into this later. It's funny. Almost everyone does a different way that the radar sense yeah. works. You know, uh, Frank Miller does kind of concentric circles. Yep. There's also just sort of like sending a 
beam, a radio beam out of his head. Uh, yeah, like I, a spidey way, sense. Yeah. The way Samney did it was probably the best that I've seen because you really do see like the shapes that he sees and and definitely. Yeah, it was it was clever. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that later on too. On the other end, yes. <laughs> now his father, a pugilist, Jack Murdoch, uh, insists that Matt concentrate on school and avoid the tough life of a professional boxer. Matt makes it into law school, paid for part, partly uh, by fixed fights uh, fought by Jack, arranged by his manager, who is named, of course, the Fixer. Fixers fix things. You thought, uh, I thought that would have been a clue to him, but okay. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> the cops bust in. Yeah. Who's, who's <laughs> fixing the fights, you know? Uh, I don't it's know. not the Fixer. <laughs> uh, no, Jack refuses to throw a fight, and he's bumped off by the mob eventually here. Mm. Uh, Matt determines to wage war on crime and corruption, which can only be done by wearing a garish costume and skirting across rooftops. You know, we this is this is news to anybody. This is the only way to do that. That's the way we do it. Uh, Daredevil debuted in a red and yellow costume, but it went through uh, several changes over the first six issues before settling on the one that we know, the familiar solid red one. And uh, that suit was uh, designed and first drawn by Wally Wood. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about later the suit does go through other changes, but yes, it does. we pretty much, you know, this is this, the, the, the red one, either with the DD on the front or not, that's the famous one that we all know. So just to set the stage a little for issue 161, because this, uh, you know, it really is a super continuous story. This this is really getting into Marvel in its prime when it's like, you know, laying stories, laying groundwork for stories while completing other ones and, you know, going nuts. But uh, it's the shooter era. Exactly. That's precisely. Yeah, I should have just said that. Uh, <laughs> having escaped from Bellevue's mental hospital, Bullseye contracted mobster Eric Slaughter to kill Daredevil for half a million dollars. Bullseye doesn't actually want them to kill Daredevil. Instead, he wants to film their attempt in order to learn Daredevil's moves. Sort of a weird way of going about it. Um, Bullseye kidnaps Black Widow, Daredevil's on-again, off-again girlfriend. At this point in the story, she's on-again for use as Daredevil bait. And that doesn't sit well with Daredevil, and he starts pressuring the criminal underworld for information. Yes, that brings us right to Daredevil number 161. The title is To Dare the Devil. Uh, the cover's pretty dynamic. It's an inverted view of some steep, winding roller coaster tracks. Black Widow is tied a little ways down the track. Uh, dead center is Daredevil being kicked into oblivion by Bullseye, gripping the front of a colorful roller coaster car barreling along. Uh, the opening page is four slender panels picking up right from where we left off last issue. Turk, a fellow named Turk, is running into Eric Slaughter's Coney Island hideout, jaw broken from a tussle with Daredevil. And so he speaks accordingly. Yeah, he says, Mr. Thorfer, you've got to do something. It's Daredevil. He's our boss. He even knows about Bullseye. And he's coming after you next, Mr. Thorfer. And Mr. Slothler says, Yes, I suspected as much. But apparently you did not suspect that he would simply follow you here. And he has, right there. We can see Daredevil just above Slaughter and his crew hanging from a pole, like right now. Right there. You are a frightened little fool, Turk. I do not like frightened little fools. Slaughter cracks uh, Turk right in the face with his scepter cane thing that he's holding. Thing, yeah. And Daredevil says, Better go easy on your hired help, Slaughter. Hurting them's not good for business. Little does he know that my business, Daredevil, is murder. Yours. That's pretty specific business you have there. But, I mean, that's basically what Daredevil's (laughs) saying. If you keep knocking your thugs unconscious, there will be less of them to do murdering. You know, I mean, this this is is simple economics, folks. Uh, Daredevil wades into the hired muscle and whaps him good with his feet and billy club, explaining a little of what happened last issue while he does it. 
namely that Bullseye put a contract out on DD and Slaughter accepted, but when Slaughter failed, Bullseye captured Black Widow in order to set a trap for Daredevil. We talked about it. Yeah, a little bit of a history on Black Widow. She debuted in Tales of Suspense, number 52. That was April 1964 by Stan Lee, Don Rico, and Don Heck. Uh, Natasha Romanoff is a one-time secret agent for the KGB and now an Avenger. Uh, Daredevil takes every takes out everyone but Slaughter, even while holding a conversation with them. Yep. Uh, <laughs> when they're all napping, he asks Slaughter where Bullseye is. But... His his question is soon answered. He he has a motor hum to life behind him before he can uh, before Slaughter can come clean. It's the Astro Tower, and its car is rising to the top. So the Astro Tower was a real attraction at Coney Island at Coney Island's Astro Land, and it was there when the park opened in 1964. It's essentially an elevator that goes 270 feet into the sky. It offers panoramic views or offered of Coney Island and the Atlantic Ocean, and you know probably a, if you want to see into Northern Brooklyn too. Uh, that was torn down in 2013. That's too bad. It sounds riveting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Daredevil climbs up the tower to see what's happening in the car. Daredevil thinks to himself, Coney Island is supposed to be closed for the winter season. Obviously, it's not. Bullseye's taunting me, forcing me out into the open. I'd better be ready for anything. Now, Daredevil's radar sense is tingling as the Astro Tower's car begins uh, descending rapidly. He thinks to himself, because in his hands, anything can be a deadly weapon. Stands to reason he turned this ride into a death trap. And a, a bunch of hired goons fire on Daredevil from a nearby section of the Cyclone roller coaster. This is a real locally and nationally uh, landmarked wooden roller coaster on Coney Island. This was opened in June of 1927, and it's still in operation to this very day. Uh, one of the farm teams for the New York Mets plays on Coney Island, and they are called the Cyclone. Yeah, they're they're the they're the Cyclones. They play on the mm-hmm. end of the of the island in Keyspan Park. I would also like yep. to recommend that no one. Ride the cyclone because you will leave with whiplash. It's uh, <laughs> it's one of the most unpleasant roller coasters. But anyway, I, I don't think I've been on it since I was very very tiny. They really have to do it when you're young because that's the only yeah. time you have enough cartilage to keep yourself from getting uh, you know bones broken. <laughs> but uh, so and your bones aren't solid at that point. Exactly. <laughs> so Daredevil, he's you know he's on the Astro Tower. He's able to flip away from the gunfire neatly, but he's running out of time before he gets squished by that falling Astro Tower car. He uses radar sense to find a spot below he can swing from using his retractable billy club, which is also sort of like a lanyard. Uh, it's the car of what's called a pendulum ride, where the structure swings back and forth, and sometimes the rider cars spin as well. We've all seen these things. Certainly. We get a caption that reads, uh, It is an impossible jump, and to dare the impossible, a man must either be blind or fearless or both. In this case, both. I think so. Uh, Daredevil lands atop the O and the N on the Cyclone sign, and a voice comes over the loudspeaker. Yes, it's the voice of Bullseye. He he says, Excellent, Daredevil. I rather thought you would manage to save yourself, but I rather doubt you'll be able to save your woman. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Perfect, by the way. Uh, Okay, so, so we haven't seen him in this issue yet, but this is as good a time as any to introduce a little Bullseye. Uh, this character debuted in Bear Double Dome, number 131, March 1976, written by Bob Brown and drawn by Klaus Janssen, though the character was created by Marl Wolfman and John Romita Sr. At this point in the in Daredevil, his origin was unknown, and it would change over time later and anyway. Uh, but for what we know now is his power, he hates Daredevil, and his powers are to throw any object with lethal, lethal accuracy, plus he has ability to do martial arts. 
Certainly. Uh, in a pretty detailed two-page spread, there's a wide shot of the cyclone, and we can see Black Widows tied up on the tracks. Uh, this looks a, a fair bit more spread out than on the actual cyclone, but it does look more or less correct. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of... He, he did a lot of detail work on the trusses and stuff. I have to mm-hmm. give it up to Frank Miller. He really spent some time on Attention this spread. Detail, yeah. sure. uh, now, the bottom half of the spread consists of a lot of uh, thin panels depicting Daredevil cavorting and swinging up to Black Widow while people shoot at him. Uh, an empty roller Coast of Goth thunders along the tracks. Uh, it's a very good bit of comic storytelling. Uh, of course, uh, you know, impossible for us to describe. Yeah, I know. But uh, yeah, if you see it, you're, you, I, I swear you'll like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Daredevil turns away from the roller coaster and appears to flee. Uh, hoodlums continue to fire on Daredevil anyway. One thug says, I don't believe it. Daredevil's cutting out. Another one says, The man without fear, what a joke. He turned tail and left the Black Widow to die. And then the runaway roller coaster slams into Black Widow's form with a kathak. Her body is knocked right off the cyclone, and we can see it laying on the ground below, and it's a dummy the whole time. It was, it was just a fake-out. Meanwhile, in the arcade... Bullseye goes, He knew. Somehow, someway, he knew. Boy, if you had any idea, you would be shocked. I still have you, Widow. You are the flame, and Daredevil's the moth drawn to the flame. You know, Chris, this patter could be... A little snappier, you know? Just I mean, a touch. He could have just said, Daredevil is the moth. That's it. You know, but pretty much know what, what's going to happen there. But anyway. You are the flame and he is the moth. Therefore, yeah, really. he will be drawn to the flame because he is a moth. Let me pull and out, you are that flame. Let me pull out the M volume of uh, the, the encyclopedia. We can read up on moths. Uh, anyway, Black, Black Widow's being held by two people while a third has a shotgun aimed at the back of her head. The two guys restrain Black Widow against a specially outfitted wall and affix these long dangling ropes to her wrists while a knife thrower that we'll learn is named Cutter menaces her with a poised blade ready to toss. He goes, he will find you sooner or later. Oh, what's left of you? Cutter says, and when he does, we'll burn him. Black Widow says, you're insane, all of you. A knife nice. hits the board right under her right armpit with a thock. And let me tell you, that thock looks very... Dark Knight Returns familiar, but okay. Yes, it does. <laughs> and Bullseye goes, That, widow, is a moot point. <laughs> Meanwhile, a little vignette setting up future Daredevil stories. We've got uh, Daily Bugle reporter Ben Urich. He's nosing around Fogwell's gym in uh, Hell's Kitchen. He's asking about Matt Murdock and his father, the pugilist Jack. Um, it's actually interesting to see because in a couple of issues, Ben will figure out that Daredevil is, in fact, Matt Murdock, which was a big turning point in the series. And this is leaning up to that. And this is, of course, but before Matt revealed his identity like every third issue yeah, and then I mean, put it away every fourth. It's, it's funny, Exactly. I mean, this is like the first time that happens that it became yeah. a thing like forever after. Yes. Now, back on Coney Island, Daredevil menaces some scattered hoods to find Bullseye's location. He catches up with an old pal and holds him by his collar while standing on the trident of a giant statue of Nep- Neptune, we're thinking? Yeah. I, 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 he has a trident. I actually, I actually looked up to see if there was any kind of structure like this at Coney Island, and I couldn't find it. But, it, yeah, I assume it's some sort of a, you know, props to the sea type of thing. Uh, Daredevil's holding Turk and says, I want Bullseye, Turk. I want him now. Either you tell me where, either you tell me where he is, or this time I'll break more than your jaw. And Turk says, "Thor, whatever you say. He's in the arcade. Only, please, don't drop me." 
And in the arcade, Bullseye directs Cutter to kill Black Widow before Daredevil arrives. A kind of an anti-climax. Yeah, uh, not really. I mean, you, you, you kind of want to do it in front of him, really, but, uh, you know, I guess Bullseye doesn't want to leave anything to chance. Unfortunately, no. Black Widow uses the ropes that bind her wrist to do some kind of ring gymnastics, pulls herself up, and contorts herself in such a way that a knife slices the rope and frees her. Then, it's butt-kicking time. Black Widow says, You used me, Bullseye. You used me, and you humiliated me, and you tried to push me to the breaking point. I don't like that. I don't like your hired muscle, and I don't like you. Your likes and dislikes are no concern of mine, Widow, but your death is yours, and most especially, Daredevil. <laughs> this, I'm sorry, the dialogue is just so ridiculous. It's bad. Your likes, like, who would say that anyway? Uh, Bullseye has raised a knife, but a red line hooks his hand with a thap before he can strike. It's Daredevil, of course. Dee Dee yanks Bullseye back by his arm and starts to enact some vengeance. Yeah, Black Widow's in the background doing perfectly fine against at least five other thugs. Yeah, uh, Daredevil just has to fight the one. He says, this is personal, Bullseye. And personally, I'm sick of you and your threats. Do I make myself clear? And Bullseye is positively getting the tar beaten out of him here. Yeah. Uh, he slams into a pitching game, sending baseballs flying everywhere. Black Widow thinks to herself, I thought I was an enigma, a master spy as deadly as my namesake, but I don't think I've ever seen Mac act so grim, so cold-blooded. He's changed. He's not the same man I used to know. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, to which Bullseye says, Daredevil, I've taken everything I'm going to take from you, except your life. And Bullseye picks up a baseball and chucks it at Daredevil, hitting his face with a Spock, also very reminiscent of a, of a certain Dark Knight Returns comic. Yes, uh, with my infallible aim, anything I touch is a deadly weapon. You don't have a chance. You never did. He's guarding his face from the flying baseballs. Daredevil throws his billy club at Bullseye. He says, I beat you before, but then Bullseye catches the billy club as it zings by his face. And that, Devil, is precisely why you're going to die. Bullseye throws the club back at Daredevil's face, catching it on the rebound, and cracks him over the head, over his horned skull. But Daredevil prevails. Daredevil smashes Bullseye through a pinball machine, then punches him right toward a pistol on the ground. Bullseye thinks to himself, I had him trapped, beaten. Why, why didn't he give up? What, what, what sort of man is he? Why would you stammer in your thoughts? Do it all the time. Does that you? you, you do you do that? You hear your thoughts the, <laughs> stuttering to yourself? All right. Uh, I usually hamana hamana. <laughs> Daredevil can sense the gun, and he knows that Bullseye's got it because he can smell the gunpowder and see it with his radar sense. Yeah, he thinks to himself, the scent of gunpowder, the click of a hammer. Bullseye has a gun, and according to my radar sense, he's between me and my billy club. I'll have to face the world's deadliest shot barehanded. And we just want to clear up for the people here. The, the, all of these pages are illustrated. <laughs> I know. It's important to say, yeah. This, this isn't the Daredevil <laughs> this, this novel. This is not prose, yes. <laughs> no, Bullseye grabs the gun and points it at Daredevil. He thinks to himself, but his heart's pounding. His hand's shaking so badly he can barely hold that revolver. I might just be able to run a bluff. Then he says aloud, then go ahead, shoot. You tried that before, remember? It didn't stop me then, and it won't stop me now. Nothing you can do will stop me now. Slaughter, don't just stand there, you fool. I'll double our contract. 
Just kill Daredevil. Hey, Slaughter's still hanging around. How about that? Look at that. Still around. Kill him. Turk says, Double the... Just say the word, Mr. Saucer, and we'll blow him away. And he was just begging Daredevil for his life like a few pages ago. Suddenly he's very tough, but... uh. That was like, what, five minutes ago? Uh, literally, I mean, it's like just happened, and now he's ready to, to blow him away. Yes, and Slaughter, he's got some bad news. He goes, no, Daredevil has earned my respect. Bullseye, on the other hand, is not. Besides, I do not trust a madman to meet his uh, financial commitments. Bullseye, listen to me. If you want Daredevil dead, you kill him. And then Bullseye positively wigs out. <laughs> he loses his stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> you think I won't? Well, I'll show you all. You roll against me, aren't you? Yes, I see now, but that doesn't matter. I'm Bullseye, <laughs> and in my hands, <laughs> my hands, <laughs> don't don't hurt me, devil. <laughs> it looks like Bullseye's gone crackers, I think. Uh, <laughs> Black Widow says, Daredevil, he's mind. And Daredevil is restraining Bullseye, who just mutters devil over and over again. <laughs> Daredevil says, it's over, Natasha. Come on, we're getting out of here, and no one is going to stop us. After some mutual parting threats with Slaughter, uh, Daredevil and Black Widow walk out into the Coney Island evening. And our issue wraps with a caption, Next issue, Blind Alley, a classic confrontation between a man and monster as Daredevil faces the Hulk. You dare not miss it. Oh, now that's some good stuff. And if you're reading the uh, like the first edition of the complete Frank Miller uh, Daredevil, you will miss it because it's not included. Oh really? <laughs> it, jumps right to, it jumps right to one sixty three. That's crazy. That's just, so they actually miss a lot of that Ben Urich stuff we were talking about. That, that, yep. I think that happens in this this Hulk arc. Is that's all part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but they did keep the uh, the Ben Urich scenes in there in this issue. I mean, you know, it's all part of the lore, you know, and they and it's still gets reference to this day. So I guess if you're uh, Try to catch up. I didn't realize they didn't include those. So I hate. I hate when they do that. But mm -hmm. did Frank Miller not draw those? You know, a fan probably not. That you know, guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we will tell you what happened next with Daredevil. Daredevil's had a storied history since then, and a lot to say. And in fact, I left off one important thing that we'll mention at the very end. Uh, Roger McKenzie's final issue on Daredevil was 167, November 1980, beginning a two-part story about kids abusing drugs. 168 was censored by the Comics Code, so Frank Miller's writing debut on the title began with that issue. The story would eventually run in issues 183 to 184, June-July 1982 cover date, Frank Miller having gained plenty of cachet at Marvel by that time. But it's crazy, because that means that, you know, Roger's ending was the first part to a story that never concluded, I'm sorry. Never ended, yeah. Didn't, didn't love that. Frank Miller's first issue was also the introduction of Elektra, Daredevil's ex-girlfriend who worked as an assassin for The Hand, and she figures very largely into his life. Frank maintained Mackenzie's dark tone for the title, but made Daredevil a more street-level hero, more prone to battling gangsters and mob bosses, and then costumed supervillains, though he did fight some of those too. He quit penciling the title with 185, August 1982 cover date, and quit the title completely after 191, February 1983, Though he did come back to pencil his last issue, and he did come back to Daredevil, as we will see. In an interview from that time, Frank Miller said that this last issue was the one he was most proud of. He, like we said, he did return to the title, and uh, it produced a, an amazing story here. Uh, Frank wrote with uh, David Masicelli uh, on art. They wrote the, uh, they produced the seven-issue arc, Daredevil: Born Again, 
which ran from Daredevil 227 through 233. It was February through August of 1986. This is, you know, this is very much Matt Murdock's Dark Knight Returns because uh, it, it, it really redefined the character. Uh, really, it, it was kind of the template for Daredevil going forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, and maybe you could even say Dark Knight Returns is sort of Batman's Born Again, if, that, if you prefer that. Yeah. But it, it's definitely sure. in that same vein, I think. Absolutely. Uh, Anne Nascenti later uh, became the series' longest-running regular writer, with a four-and-a-quarter-year run from uh, 238 to 291. That was January 1987 through April of 1991. During her run, Matt Murdock became a drifter in upstate New York, which was the first time he'd left Hell's Kitchen's urban environment for any extended period of time. Uh, D.G. Chichester came over, uh, he took over from Anne with issue uh, 292. This was May 1991. Uh, He did Fall from Grace. This was uh, one of those speculator stories where it's like, this is going to be a big deal. Uh, It wasn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It ran from issues 319 to 325. This is August of 93 through February 94. And uh, featured pencils by Scott McDaniel. In it, Chichester uh, brought back Electra, who had not been used, uh, hadn't been seen since her return in issue 190, and uh, gave Daredevil a a really ugly uh, or awesome, depending on your uh, <laughs> depending fair on enough, your fair enough, costume. It's the uh, the it's the motocross Daredevil. It's uh, <laughs> It's 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 a thing. It's a it's. You gotta see it to believe it. It's got some white in it. It's got some gray in it. It had shoulder and knee pads. Yes. Now he has nunchucks. I, it was very weird. Yes, he was trying to be. He wasn't Matt Murdock anymore. Is the thing. Matt Murdock was dead. This is a different Daredevil. Oh. Okay. But we we know it was a uh, you know really him of course. Uh, <laughs> we had, like you said here. It's it's got the shoulder and knee pads. It's uh, and his his billy club is now like a bow staff that could turn into nunchucks. He can like split it. Yeah. And swing it. Um, his final issue was issue three forty two. This was July nineteen ninety five. Uh, though for that and the four issues prior, he uh, the work is credited to uh, a fellow by the name of Alan Smithy. Hmm. He does a lot of stuff when creators are yeah. upset. He's, he did a lot of a lot of stuff I don't like. As a matter of fact, that's interesting. <laughs> it's either that or John Harkness. Uh, <laughs> Now, this is because uh, while Chichester was taking a six-issue break after 332, this was September 1994, Gregory Wright handled the fill-in arc. Uh, there was an editorial shakeup at Marvel that led to, among other things, Bobby Chase becoming the editor for Daredevil. Uh, Chase planned to, re- uh, planned to replace Chichester after issue 342. But didn't intend to tell him. Uh, meanwhile, he found out while he was on his break from Daredevil. So in protest, he had his name removed for the la- from the last five issues and replaced uh, with, a, you know, this is the typical literary pseudonym. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in film, of course, it's uh, Alan Smithy. That's how he went out. Which, I, I got to say, Chris, it strikes me instead of a non-protest, because usually you reserve that in a case where directors or screenwriters or an editor or somebody has so fundamentally changed your original work that you don't you don't want to lay any claim to it. You know, you're like, yeah. this, this is no longer my work. I'm just going to be Alan Smithy on this thing. Uh, Chase didn't do anything to change Chichester's stories, just wanted to fire him. So yeah. the, re- the real protest would be just to pull out a writing at the last minute and leave, you know, Marvel <laughs> holding the bag. Right. Uh, but, I, you know, the paycheck. We, we do need money in this world, so I, I assume yeah. he... Wasn't willing to protest that far, but uh, and the bo- the bottom hadn't fallen out on the industry just yet. Exactly, yeah. So he, there was still some hay to be made, as they say. Mm-hmm. 
Now, uh, J.M.D. Mateus wrote a quick run from 344 to 350. That was September 95 to March 96 cover dates that largely undid a lot of uh, Chichester's story developments and restored the classic red costume without armor. Yeah. Frank Miller returned to the character and his origins with the 90, 1993, we're going backwards a little bit, five-issue Daredevil, The Man Without Fear miniseries. With artist John Romita Jr., Miller expanded upon Daredevil's origin story, which I think is pretty much the origin template now, though I... I think you're right. I wouldn't swear to it. I don't can't say for sure. <laughs> uh, Carl Kiesel took over writing duties on Daredevil with issue 353, the cover date June 1996, and Joe Kelly took over on 365, June 1997, though Joe did a one-shot with issue 358 first. Uh, they would bring a lighter, more swashbuckling tone back to Daredevil, and this is basically Daredevil's narrative struggle throughout the entire life of his character. Is he a dark, yep. brooding ninja, or is he a happy-go-lucky, you know, sw uh, swinging... Sort of spider uh, yeah, exactly. This is sort of spider type, yeah. Um, now, in 1998, Daredevil's numbering was rebooted. Uh, the title itself was canceled with issue number 380 and was revived a month later because it's Marvel and that's what they do. Uh, but to be fair, they did move it to a different imprint. This is the Marvel Knights imprint. And uh, the story would be written by uh, Kevin Smith and drawn by Joe Quesada. Uh, Smith was succeeded for six issues by David Mack, uh, and he would bring someone to, the, to, to Marvel who would write Daredevil and change Marvel forever. That was uh, Brian Bendis. He would come in after that. Uh, Bendis and Ed Brubaker would write the bulk of Daredevil issues until it returned to its original numbering, which is Daredevil Volume 2, number 119. The following month was Daredevil Volume 1, number 500. Oh, and, uh, that, that must have because made, must Marvel. Have made the collectors thrilled. They were like, great. <laughs> How do I file this? Uh, now, that, that happened in October 2009. Uh, then Andy Diggle took over for a while. Uh, in July of 2011, Daredevil relaunched with uh, Volume 3, Number 1. This is September 2011. Uh, this was writer Mark Wade, who was eventually joined by Chris Samney. This is a multiple Eisner Award-winning team, and uh, it's probably the most fun run on Daredevil since the dawning of the Marvel Age. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's one of my—I'm I'm a pretty big Daredevil fan, although <laughs> probably not as big as D-Ron Murphy, but— yeah. Uh, but I do love Daredevil. This is one of my favorite runs. I really love it. I really enjoy oh, it. Oh, it was always, it was always, every issue felt like an event. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun there. Uh, now it's being written by Charles Soule, and uh, it's the first time in about a quarter century that's not on my pull list. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so what are you going to do? Sorry to say, I, uh, you know, and Charles Soule's a guy I really liked a lot of his work. Me too. Not on Me this. I, I hung in for quite a while. And it was actually. I just stopped caring. It's not bad. I just stopped caring. It, it, it just seemed very dull. You know, when, you know. I mean, this is we're really getting into the minutia and into context here. But you know, he he had at the end of Mark Wade and Samney's run, he had gone to San Francisco, and everyone knew yep. his identity, and he was dealing with that. And then Secret Wars happened. Something <laughs> happened, and suddenly he's back in New York, and he's the DA, and no one knows his identity. And he's got a sidekick. And, yeah, that's right. He had a sidekick, yeah. and, and uh, to be honest, the tone changed. But then again, you know, that is a creator change, so that wasn't that crazy. Sure. But uh, so uh, you know, I was okay with that, and they were they kept saying we're going to tease it out. We're going to tell you what happened. Well, I think we got like I think I read like twelve issues and, and nothing, and learned nothing. And I said, well, now I've just spent like fifty plus bucks on this thing, yeah. And I, I don't know anything more than I knew back in you know last year. So anyway. Uh, but we're not talking about Charles Soule's run on Daredevil. We're really talking no. about Daredevil 161. You know, 
we have the same trade collection of the Frank Miller thing. So, mm-hmm. and I, I read that years ago. So I must have read this, but I had no memory of it. Chris, what did you have any specific memory of this issue? I uh, this the first <laughs> the first volume of the complete Frank Miller was it was always kind of a tough read for me because, like we mentioned a few times while doing the script here, was uh, this dialogue. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's like expositional, but it's in the moment. It's it's just so. It's like Stan Lee would look at that and be like, whoa, pull it back, you know? It's it's just a bit out there. And too much talking about what you're seeing, as you pointed out, too, which is an old-school comic trope, but by this time, it should not have flown that. Very passe and very unnecessary because, you know, Frank Miller, and to talk about him, like, you know... I mean, he's not quite capable. That, really capable, and you know, <laughs> yes. and, and now he's got such a specific, very scratchy kind of blocky style, which is which is whatever. And I had kind of forgotten that he really is traditionally, you know, he comes from the traditional cartooning school of how to draw comics the Marvel way. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. and and his anatomy is great. There's a lot of great dynamic poses by Daredevil. A lot of storytelling is great in this. Like like we talked about that, oh, that yeah. spread with the slender panels and the way he chops up time. Uh, you know, this this is really it's funny because on one level it's really interesting craft. On the other level, it's sort of a dull read, personally. No, yeah. f- no offense to anybody specific, but that was just my take on it. But you know, totally agreed. Yeah, had a good time with it, and plus we got to hang out in Coney Island, as you know, one of my favorite places in the oh, yeah. borough of Brooklyn. And we are going to come <laughs> back and talk all about that place, as well as more about creator bios and other superheroes similarly afflicted, like Daredevil. After the break. Uh, this is Frank Miller. He's hot. Better take a look at him. We've got to keep in mind that the main image people have of superheroes is the is Adam West playing Batman on the old TV show. That's what had to be overcome. But the idea itself is 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 valuable, and it's also um, a hell of a lot of fun to to write and draw. If you get it back to what the substance of the idea is, if you um, remember that Superman began as a, as a as a common man against. Um, the forces of, of evil in the world, which were largely forces of authority back in the 30s. Um, and you, you know, you, you go back to when, when Batman was a, was a vigilante who carried a gun on his hip back in the 30s again. You, you start seeing what a strong chord they can strike. Much of the stuff that, that Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, and others are doing now is kind of a right-wing version of those old comic books. And... Uh, Dark Knight was really an attempt to, to take it back a lot in terms of in terms of its base, the basic meat of the of the material. So we are back here at the second half of the episode. Going to wrap up a little bit of these uh, creator bios. Some more about Roger McKenzie. Yeah, I have a quote from him here. He says, "My run on Daredevil began with issue number one fifty one. I was, of all things, the DC proofreader at the time, but had previously pestered Marvel's editor in chief at the time, Archie Goodwin." He asked me if I would like to take over scripting Daredevil and Ghost Rider from Jim Shooter, whose editorial, editorial responsibilities made it impossible for him to c- continue writing those titles. The thing with Daredevil, and later Captain America, nobody, is that nobody was paying attention to any of those characters at all. So I pretty much got to do what I wanted with them. In DD's case, I was able to make him moodier, scarier, an actual part of Hell's Kitchen. Rather than continue him as a wisecracking second-rate Spider-Man, I thought it would open new horizons if we explored more of the devil aspect, and I would make him more of an ordinary man's hero. Apparently I was right. Where I would have gone with the character's storyline is anyone's guess. Editor Denny O'Neill remembers it a little differently. He says, Another writer was doing the scripts when I took over the book. 
Frank asked if he could write a short backup story, and thinking about that if he bombed, I could always do an overnight rewrite. I said, sure. He did well, and I decided to chance letting him script the monthly book. Yeah, other Marvel Comics uh, titles that Mackenzie contributed to included Battlestar Galactica from uh, 1979 to 1980, and Captain America, like he said, uh, through uh, 78 to 80. That was a... See, Mackenzie and artist uh, Don Perlin developed the idea of Captain America running for the office of President of the United States. Uh, Marvel originally rejected the idea, but it would be uh, used later by Roger Stern and John Byrne in Captain America 250. This was October 1980, and that's that one with the kind of iconic button uh, cover. And uh, see, Mackenzie and Perlin got writing credit, though, at uh, Roger Stern's insistence. Curiously, Jim Shooter also gets writing credit. I don't know why, why not. Okay. <laughs> now, Mackenzie and Berlin would also receive credit in What If, number 26. It was April 1981. Uh, the story was What If Captain America Was Elected President? That's right. It was their brilliant idea, so they get all the credit. Mackenzie mm-hmm. uh, has written for a variety of independent publishers, such as Pacific Comics. He did Sunrunners 1 through 3 in 1984, Comico Comics, Pied Piper Comics, and Eclipse Comics. In 2014, Mackenzie founded Checkmate Comics, which seems best I could figure out. It was like it's like a sub imprint of the Charlton Neo, the new Charlton. Uh, okay, it's hard to it's hard to tell what's going on with those guys, to be honest with you. But uh, there at Checkmate Comics, he's the editor of Bud Colbert, Time Traveling Janitor, and Big Busty Broads of World War II, which I'm definitely going to go look for. Uh, like, like, this is very strange. So he he also serves as the executive editor of the Charlton Neo line of comics, uh, where he writes for Charlton Arrow and Charlton Wild Frontier. Uh, you know, we I I assume you do too. You see these comics kind of like advertised around the yeah. internet a little bit, but I think they just got Diamond Distribution, so you might start seeing them in stores. Oh, but, they might actually start showing up. But till now, yeah, till now it was all mail order. I guess I I don't really I or digital or something yeah. like that. Yeah, they do have a digital line too. Uh, since February 2015, he's been writing the Spookman week, weekly comic strip, which is digital, with Sandy Carruthers for PixC, a web comic site. I get it. Well, there you go. Pixie. Yep. <laughs> now, on to the other side of the table here, Frank Miller. Uh, as mentioned, uh, Frank debuted on Daredevil number 158. This was May 1979, at the uh, the end of a story by Roger McKenzie and inked by uh, Klaus Janssen. However, sales on Daredevil did not improve. Marvel's management continued to discuss cancellation of the title, and Miller himself almost quit the series as he, <laughs> like us, disliked Mackenzie's scripts. Oh, what, what, what for? Come on, anyway. Why do you keep piling on this poor guy? <laughs> uh, when Denny O'Neill came on as editor of the series, he uh, recognized Miller's talent in a backup that he'd written that we discussed earlier. Uh, so O'Neill fired Roger McKenzie and put Frank on as the writer-slash-artist of Daredevil. Roger recalls, I didn't let the kid take over the writing. That was an editorial decision, not mine. I was removed from the book following my Hulk story and the following Exposed story where reporter Ben Urich confronts Matt at the hospital, having pieced together Matt's secret identity. All I was ever told was that I was being taken off the book because I didn't contribute anything to it. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it gets better. Frank felt my Daredevil was too dark and should be more humorous. 
And boy, did Frank inject the humor into it, huh? So funny. Uh, <laughs> so Frank Miller's first solo issue was Daredevil 168, uh, covered 8 January 1981. Sales rose so swiftly that Marvel once again began publishing Daredevil monthly rather than every other month, which is what it had been with 171, just three issues after Miller became its writer. Wow. Sales must have rocketed. Sure. Uh, by the end of Frank Simon Daredevil, it was Marvel's most popular solo character title. Miller's first shot at Batman was drawing a short Christmas story, Wanted, Santa Claus, Dead or Alive, written by Dennis O'Neill for DC Special Series number 21, Spring 1980. O'Neill and Miller collaborated on Amazing Spider-Man annuals number 14, October 1980, and 15 in October 1981, and Miller did uh, the covers for both of those as well. Frank Miller penciled and co-plotted the Wolverine 4-issue miniseries, September through December 1982, written by Chris Claremont. And Frank Miller's first creator-owned title was DC Comics' six-issue miniseries Ronin from 1983 to 1984. In 1985, DC Comics named Miller as one of the honorees in the company's 50th anniversary publication, 50 Who Made DC Great. Not bad after only working there for, yeah, what, brand, a year or really two? <laughs> brand new, a brand new guy, and yeah, he's already top of the charts. Among the pantheon, yes. Uh, now, despite how great DC thought he was, Miller returned to Daredevil, like we said earlier, with uh, issue 219. This is June 1985. This was uh, penciled by John Buscema. Uh, Miller co-wrote Daredevil 226, January 1986, with the parting writer Dennis O'Neill. Uh, and then in, 19, in 1986, DC Comics released a four-issue prestige miniseries, The Dark Knight Returns, that was written and drawn by Frank Miller, uh, inked by Klaus Jansen, and colored by Lynn Varley. Uh, this is this is one you, you, you might have heard of it. You might have heard of it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> now, after completing the Born Again arc, Frank uh, intended to produce a two-part story with artist Walt Simonson, but it never got completed, and it remains unpublished to this day. Yeah, Frank uh, Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz produced the uh, original graphic novel Daredevil: Love and War in 1986. It sort of acts as a bridge between uh, Frank Miller's earliest Daredevil work and the Born Again storyline. Uh, Miller and Sienkiewicz also produced the eight-issue miniseries Electra Assassin. This came out through uh, Marvel's Epic imprint mm -hmm. and, and ran from August 1986 through March 1987. Uh, he would team up with David Masicelli again for DC Comics, and editor Denny O'Neill would also be in, in, in the mix in 1987 for Batman issues 404 to 407. That was uh, February and May cover dates, February through May cover dates, and a story arc titled Batman Year One, another one you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. Originally pitched as in a graphic novel, O'Neill suggested they do it in the regular Batman comic so payments would come sooner. <laughs> a great editor, he sounds like. That's uh, fact. Yeah. Uh, Frank did the covers for the first comics adaptations of the manga Lone Wolf and Cub, which were later reused in Dark Horse's 21st Century collections. During this time, Miller, along with Marv Wolfman, Alan Moore, and Howard Chaikin, had been in dispute with DC Comics over a proposed rating system. Their displeasure was registered in a petition signed by 26 freelancers published in Comics Buyer's Guide. It was a reaction to an open letter published by Buddy Saunders of Lone Star Comics about the lack of morality in comics, as well as two comic shops in Indiana being harassed for selling stuff labeled For Mature Readers. Frank Miller said the evangelist's criticism was enough to cause a great deal of fear. It's hardly unusual. Since the 50s, the comics publishers have made it clear that any pressure group can come and get us anytime they want. As far as I know, the comics industry has never done a thing for the First Amendment. We've got to stop looking at ourselves as worthless and impotent. We are active participants in what's going on in the media. 
Yeah, Frank left uh, DC and mainstream comics on a on a hole at that point, settling in with Dark Horse Comics as publisher as his publisher of choice. Uh, Miller completed one final project for Epic Comics. This is an original graphic novel called Electro Lives Again. This is 1990. It was a it's an oversized. Uh, it's a beautiful book, uh, written and fully painted by Frank Miller with coloring by Lynn Varley. Uh, for Titan Comics, Miller and artist Jeff Darrow produced Hard Boiled. This is a three issue miniseries. At the same time, Miller and artist Dave Gibbons produced Give Me Liberty, a four-issue miniseries for Dark Horse. Uh, this would have a follow-up miniseries and, and a whole bunch of spin-offs. Uh, this is the uh, Martha Washington, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Miller wrote the scripts for RoboCop 2, the 1990 film, and RoboCop 3, the 1993 film. Uh, we'll discuss them a little bit more in a bit. No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will discuss yeah. the four-issue miniseries RoboCop vs. the Terminator, and uh, we actually discussed that in great detail a in few episodes ago. Yeah. Like, um, now, this came out through Dark Horse. Uh, and in 1991, uh, Miller started work on the first Sin City story. Uh, this was serialized in Dark Horse's anthology series, Dark Horse Presents, issues 51 through 62. That ran from June of 1991 through May of 1992. It would eventually be released as a trade collection in 1993 under the name The Hard Goodbye. Uh, so Frank Miller worked on Sin City primarily through the 1990s, partly inspired by his living in Los Angeles at the time. Sin City would have several more yarns collected in various ways. This was, they were uh, Dame to Kill For, November 93 to May 94. The Babe Wore Red and Other Stories in November 1994 collects three short stories and behind door number three, The Customer's Always Right and The Babe Wore Red. Another one titled The Big Fat Kill, November 1994 to March 1995. A Silent Night, an issue, uh, it's a one shot, 26 pages, came out November 1995. That Yellow Bastard, February 1996 to July 1996. Daddy's Little Girl, a one-shot story, first published in A Decade of Dark Horse number 1, cover date July 1996, and reprinted in Tales to Offend number 1, July 1997. There was Lost, Lonely, and Lethal, December 1996. This collects three stories, Fat Man and Little Boy, Blue Eyes, and Rats. Uh, Another one, Sex and Violence, came out in March 1997, contains two stories, Wrong Turn and Wrong Track. Just Another Saturday Night, as a story in 1990, August 1997. It was first published in Sin City Number no. 1 Half, a limited mail-in comic available only through a special offer in Wizard Number no. 73. It was Family Values in October 1997, released as an original graphic novel. And then finally, Helen Back, July 1999 to April 2000. Hmm. That's a lot of and- Sin City, boy. And if you buy the latest printings of them, the, the glue is pretty shoddy. Really? Oh, well. <laughs> I bought the first three, and all three of the covers fell off. Mm. Um, maybe it was just maybe it's just Arizona. Maybe the Arizona heat, yeah. <laughs> it might be. Now, uh, Miller and John Romita Jr., as we mentioned, would produce the five-issue Daredevil Man Without Fear in 1993 for Marvel. And, of course, that's that retelling and updating of his origin. Uh, I think it also uh, it brought, like, Electra into the into the early days. Yeah. Um, and expanded, Miller, it expanded Sticks role. Yeah, yeah. laid a lot of the foundation for what we think of now as uh, Daredevil. Uh, Frank Miller would write Spawn number 11, June 1993, and the Spawn Batman crossover in 1994, both of those for the Image Comics. 
Uh, Miller and Jeff Darrow collaborated again in 1995 on Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot, a series which uh, became an animated series on Fox Kids in 1999. Frank produced the five-issue series 300 for Dark Horse in 1998. It would be collected in 1999, and it's one of those books that is hard to fit on your shelf because it's long. <laughs> it's chunky, boy. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a retelling of the Battle of a... Thermopylae, Thermopylae, Thermopylae. There you go. I like that. There we go. From the point of view of Leonidas of Sparta, uh, in 2001, Frank Miller moved back to Hell's Kitchen in New York City. He produced Batman: The Dark Knight Strikes Again as a three-issue uh, prestige format series from 2001 to 2002, which is a favorite of yours. Oh yes, I love. <laughs> Can't get enough of that one, boy. Oof. Everybody loves DK, too. Um, in 2003, Miller's screenplay for RoboCop 2 was adapted for comics by Stephen Grant. It came out through Avatar Press. Uh, it would be illustrated by Juan Jose Rip, and the series is called Frank Miller's RoboCop. In 2005, Miller wrote All-Star Batman and Robin, drawn by Jim Lee. Published as 10 issues between 2005 and 2008. Technically still an ongoing, I think. Uh, they've never really said they weren't going to do more. Uh, Jim Lee swears that there are a bunch of drawn pages out there in the world. They weathered uh, the new 52. Yeah, it's, I guess so. But <laughs> They must be on a shelf somewhere. Uh, issue number 10 is well, well known for containing visible profanity that caused the comic to be recalled. Uh, you got to see it to understand, folks. It's, yeah. you, can read, you can read the F-bombs quite clearly under these like blackouts. <laughs> Director Robert Rodriguez made a short film based on a story from Miller's Sin City entitled The Customer is Always Right. Based on this, he and Miller entered a partnership to adapt Sin City to a feature film. Miller's comics were used as storyboards, and Rodriguez wanted to give Frank Miller co-directing credit. The, director, the Directors Guild of America would not allow it, citing that only legitimate teams get credit. That's kind of messed up. Yeah. Uh, Rodriguez chose to resign from the DGA, stating, It was easier for me to quietly resign before shooting, because otherwise I'd be forced to make compromises I, I was unwilling to make or set a precedent that might hurt the guild later on. Sin City, the movie, was released on April 1st, 2005, and it was a pretty popular film. Worldwide total from theater receipts was $158.7 million. Uh, second movie, Sin City, a Dame to Kill For, based on Miller's second Sin City series, and co-directed by Miller and Robert Rodriguez, was released in theaters on August 22nd, 2014. Not as well received. Worldwide net was three thirty nine point four million. So, well, when you strike when the iron is that hot, you know, nine years later, it's yeah, <laughs> you, you kind of let it settle a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Frank Miller directed the Lionsgate film adaptation of The Spirit in two thousand eight. Didn't do all that well. It grossed uh, thirty eight million three hundred ninety five thousand thirty dollars worldwide. In uh, September 2011, Frank Miller released the original graphic novel called Holy Terror, uh, which was originally going to be a Batman graphic novel called Holy Terror Batman, wherein the Cape Crusader fights Al-Qaeda. Um, <laughs> as he neared the end of this process, uh, of his process here, uh, Frank decided the character was more Dirty Harry than Batman. He recast a new hero named The Fixer. I wonder if he fixes fights. Wow. And uh, he retitled the work Just Holy Terror. Um, Miller was unabashed about this being a propaganda piece, and he told uh, National, was it National Public, Public Radio? Radio. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yeah, he says to them, uh, for the first time in my life, I know what it, how it feels to face an existential menace. They want us all to die. All of a sudden, I realized what my parents were talking about all those years. 
Patriotism, I now believe, isn't some sentimental old conceit. It's self-preservation. I believe patriotism is central to a nation's survival. Ben Franklin said it. If we don't hang together, we hang separately. Uh, in, two, in November 2011, uh, he would speak out against the Occupy Wall Street protest uh, on his blog. He referred to the participants as nothing but a pack of louts, thieves, and rapists, fed by a Woodstock-era nostalgia and a putrid false righteousness. Wake up, pond scum. America is at war against a ruthless enemy. Maybe between bouts of self-pity and all that other tasty tidbits of narcissism you've been served up in your sheltered, comfy little worlds, you've heard terms like al-Qaeda and Islamicism. That, that went over very well with the uh, kids, I think. They always like to be talked to that way. That usually works out well. <laughs> yeah, they do, especially if you do it on a blog. If you did it in a newspaper or something, yeah. you know, they might not have even they seen it. They probably wouldn't have ever seen it. That was the thing, yeah. Uh, it probably got more than one retweet, so you, you, people saw it. There you go. It got around. <laughs> uh, in 2015, DC began publishing The Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. Miller co-wrote it with Brian Azzarello, with Andy Kubert and Class Jansen on The Artists. I then this actually wrapped up uh, this week on uh, this week, right? June the sixth, we got the last issue, which I think was the ninth or eighth issue. I forget how they did it. Hmm. Uh, now we go backwards again. In two thousand five, he divorced Lynn Varley, a longtime collaborator that colored many of Frank Miller's seminal works. Frank Miller received an Inkpot Award in nineteen eighty one. He won the Kirby Award for best single issues two years in a row in nineteen eighty six for Daredevil two hundred twenty seven, in nineteen eighty seven for Batman: The Dark Knight Returns number one. Also won the Kirby Award for Best Art Team in 1987 for Dark Knight Returns. Won the Harvey Award for Best Continuing or Limited Series in 1986 for Sin City. Then in 1999 for 300. On July 10th, 2015 at the San Diego Comic-Con, Miller was inducted into the Eisner Awards Hall of Fame. Very nice. Hmm. Yes, very, very storied career. Definitely. Now, <laughs> with them out of the way, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the where this story uh, took place, yeah. Coney Island. Uh, Coney Island is currently a peninsula at the very southern end of Brooklyn, New York, uh, known best as an amusement park today. It began its colonial life as hunting grounds for the aristocrats. Uh, Coney is Old English for hair, like a rabbit hair, right. not on your head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the original Lenope, uh, is it Lenape? It's Lenape. Lenape. The inhabitants called this area Oi, Nariak. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> this name has been attributed to uh, the meaning of land without shadows or always in light. Uh, a second meaning, a, a meaning attributed to Narak is point or corner of land. At the time of European settlement, the land that makes up the present-day Coney Island was divided across several separate islands that, over the years, were changing shape because of constant uh, redeposit of sand due to tidal forces. Uh, in a uh, 1679 through 1680 journal by Jasper Denkertz <laughs> and Peter Slater— Very, very Dutch was, names here. They are, indeed. It was named Koninen Island. Uh, it was fully separated by, from the mainland, and that— they say, nobody lives upon it, but it is used in winter for keeping cattle, horses, oxen, hogs, and others, which we are able to obtain there, which are able to obtain there sufficient to eat the whole winter and to shelter themselves from the cold in the thickets. This island is not so cold as Long Island or the Manhattans or others, like some other islands on the coast, in consequence of their having more sea breeze and of the saltiness of the sea breaking up the shoals, rocks, and reefs in which the coast is beset. 
Now, Coney Island started to become a resort and look a little more familiar to what we would know today. In 1829, when the Gravesend and Coney Island Road and Bridge Company built the first bridge across Coney Island Creek, connecting the island with the mainland, and built Shell, Shell Road across the island to the beaches. That same year, they also built the first hotel on the island called Coney Island House near present-day Seagate. Initially, Coney Island was reachable only by carriage, so it was really just a resort for the wealthy. In 1847, the middle class started going to Coney Island upon the introduction of a ferry line to Norton's Point, named after the hotel Orton owner Michael Norton at the western portion of the peninsula, so I assume it sailed from southern Manhattan. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be my guess. Gang activity started as well right here in the middle 1800s with one 1870s writer noting that going to Coney Island could result in losing money and even life. Andrew R. Culver, president of the Prospect Park and Coney Island Railroad, had built a steam railway in 1875. For 35 cents, one could ride the Prospect Park and Coney Island Railroad to the Surf Avenue Terminal, which is pretty much where the F, Q, and B terminate today. Across the street from the terminal, the 300-foot-tall Iron Tower brought from the 1876 Philadelphia Exposition, provided patrons with a bird's-eye view of the coast. So I guess that was like the first Astro Tower, Mm -hmm. in a way. (laughs) By this time, it became a very popular resort and vacation destination. The entire peninsula, which includes Brighton and Manhattan beaches, was dotted with hotels and bathhouses, still largely for the upper class. Uh, Between about 1880 and World War II, Coney Island was the largest amusement area in the United States, attracting several million visitors per year. At its height, it contained three competing major amusement parks, Luna Park, Dreamland, and Steeplechase Park, as well as many independent amusements. And uh, Luna Park is uh, what my mother and my grandmother would say if we ever left the lights on in the house. They'd be Uh, like, what are we, in Luna Park? Oh, look at that. It's so (laughs) brightly lit. Yes. Now, when the uh, Brooklyn Rapid Transit, Com- uh, Rapid Transit Company electrified the steam railroads and connected Brooklyn to Manhattan via the Brooklyn Bridge at the beginning of the 20th century, Coney Island turned rapidly from a resort to an accessible location for day trippers seeking to escape the summer heat in New York City's tenements. In 1915, the Sea Beach Line was upgraded to a subway line, followed by the other former excursion roads and the opening of the New West End Terminal in 1919 ushered in uh, that, uh, that would usher in Coney Island's busiest era. Through the through the turn of the 20th century, Coney Island was still an island, being separated from the main part of Brooklyn by a three-mile-long Coney Island Creek. This was largely filled in by the 30s by local business people and after construction of the Belt Parkway. Uh, more would get filled in during the early 60s, resulting from the construction of the Verrazano Narrows. Yeah, that's always something reading through history when you you know you realize how much of our landmass has changed through these public works projects. Sure, uh, it's it's something to look into if you are interested in looking at comparing old maps with today's maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a couple of rides that are still there today: the Wonder Wheel Ferris Wheel opened on Memorial Day 1920, and the Cyclone Roller Coaster, which we talked about in the issue. Opened on June 26, 1927. Uh, they're both still in operation, and they are both still they are both landmarked. I know Coney Island is our Cyclone is a national. I'm not sure about Wonder Wheel, but it's definitely a city landmark. Sure. Uh, the Lifesavers parachute jump from the 1939 World's Fair was bought and moved to Coney Island after the fair. It still stands towards the eastern end of the boardwalk, but hasn't worked in at least a decade. I think. Two decades, frankly. Probably longer, yeah. It's just, it's just sitting there. And actually, they did travel, but it, it, it was nothing. It was just a rusty nothing for a long time. Recently, they stuck a bunch of lights on it. So Very that's, nice. That's nice. 
Uh, after World War II, Coney Island's finances began to contract due in part to a large number of post-war gangs that held the area. But we can also blame television, movies, and all the other things that changed American life at that time. Uh, due to vandalism, low attendance, or both, the amusement parks began to close. In 1964, Fred Trump, that's right, President Trump's father, bought the last remaining amusement area, Steeplechase Park, and bulldozed it in hopes of building luxury apartments. The area was still zoned for amusement, something that he could not get the city to change. So he eventually leased the area to an operator of fairground amusements who ran his dilapidated kitty rides in the same <laughs> location as Steeplechase. I mean, you got to imagine this, Chris. I mean, this is a place where they used to have, like, some of the greatest rides in America. They had, yep. like, And now it's like, it's like the, the merry-go-round and, like, bumper cars, and that's all there was there. Yeah, uh, like a one-legged clown. Yeah, I I I, I put here. This would have the effect of a, of parking a tricycle in a spot meant for an SUV. It was like there you ridiculous. go. <laughs> so between the loss of both Luna Park and the original Steeplechase Park, as well as an urban urban renewal plan that took place in the surrounding neighborhood, where middle class houses were replaced with housing projects, attendance plummeted. Yeah, to the point where by the mid-70s, Coney Island was given over almost totally to street gangs and was a very frequent site for violence. The uh, feature film The Warriors by Walter Hill came out in 1979, and that which glamorized New York's uh, you know, street gang culture. Uh, the titular gang, The Warriors, are from Coney Island. Uh, all this to say the events taking place in Daredevil 161 from 1980 would have happened in a Coney Island like this, largely abandoned, derelict, rife with crime and murder. Through the 80s, and then particularly in the 21st century, Coney Island got an influx of cash and has become an amusement destination for New Yorkers once again. Yeah, I would say anybody now, feel free to visit. It's no longer—it hasn't been dangerous in a long time. It's not dangerous now. It's got tons of rides for the kids. It's got boardwalk and all that. It's—I it's, I like it a lot. Uh, it is a quite a schlep from where I live. It's—it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's like one of the most remote places in New York City that isn't Staten Island, but— uh, Sure. It's uh, maybe worth a visit, depending how long you're spending in New York City. Is the aquarium still open? Because you could do that. The aquarium is still open. <laughs> it's still over there. Uh, God, I could I could go into a story about that too, but unfortunately, <laughs> we are we're actually not doing a podcast about Cody Island. We're talking about uh, comic books. So, uh, oh yeah, we, we wanted right. we we wanted to do a list <laughs> of some other uh, superheroes that were that were handicapped. Uh, but you know, when we started to think about it. It's sort of a funny subject because, literally speaking, a lot of superheroes could just be considered handicapped. Uh, sure. For example, like Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, he has to cope with eyes that perpetually emit force beams. It's his power and his curse. Same kind of thing with, like, Vic Stone, a.k.a. Cyborg, and, like, Cable's also like this. Has a robotic body that really is just his life support. You know, it's like <laughs> it gives him powers, but it's also, like, a, a big hubris. So, sure. For the purposes of this list, and this is not the most complete list, I'm sure, but, you know, we do the best we can. Uh, we suck the handicaps normally covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act, so not force of beams coming out of your eyes, for example. <laughs> it's not a perfect metric either, but it's what we're going with. Also, um, How about having a negative entity in you? Yeah, is that, is that covered? No. I mean, is that why you have ramps? Is that why we do that? Uh, it might be. I also want to say we're not going to name people with mental disorders because uh, while they would be covered by the ADA, anyone that would wear a bodysuit costume and go out in the world to beat up people is a little nuts. You know what I mean? So there's no there's reason. something to, going on, yeah. No reason split hairs on that. So it's really <laughs> people with physical disabilities. And we're going to start with Captain Marvel Jr., a.k.a. Freddie Freeman. He debuted in Wiz Comics number 25, December 1941, by France Heron and Mac Ray, Ray Boy, Raboy, sure. Yeah, one of them. 
after being injured in a scuffle between Captain Marvel and Captain Nazi, yeah, hmm. Captain Nazi, <laughs> Freddy is on his deathbed until Captain Marvel gives him some power, some of his powers to revive him. Thereafter, when Freddy says Captain Marvel, he turns into a superpowered hero in the vein of his namesake, but he's still a teenager. He doesn't turn into an adult. When not a superhero, Freddy's left leg is lame and he requires crutches. We have uh, Dr. Midnight, a.k.a. Dr. Charles McNiter. Uh, I love that name. Uh, He debuted in All-American Comics number 25, April 1941, by Charles Riesenstein and Stanley Joseph's Akshmir. Uh, While operating on a star witness in a mafia trial, a mobster throws a grenade into the operating room, which blinds Dr. McNiter. Later, he finds out he's not blind, but can only see in total blackness. And so he creates blackout goggles and special blackout bombs in order to get around. And uh, he also starts hanging out with an owl named Hootie. Like which you do. do. Yeah, that's how, yeah. That's how it goes. <laughs> you know, another, another character that can see in the dark. Uh, there's Thor, a.k.a. Donald Blake. We're going back to the original Thor here. Debuted in Journey into Mystery number 83, August. No, not the original Norse Thor, the original Marvel Thor. Uh, debuted in <laughs> Journey into Mystery number 83, August 1962, by Stan Lee, Jack, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. Dr. Donald Blake can walk only with a cane until he strikes it on the ground, turning it into the hammer, Mjolnir, and himself into the Norse god Thor. In Thor, God of Thunder ni- number 25, November 2014, after Thor has lost his ability to wield Mjolnir, cancer sufferer Jane Foster picks it up and becomes the new Thor. She's free of cancer while a Norse goddess but it comes back in spades when she returns to Jane. This is not really the same kind of disability, but it's a similar kind of thing happening here. Malady, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting, though, that Jane Foster actually did debut in the same Journey to Mysteries Thor, and then mm-hmm. had basically been forgotten for decades. Yep. Uh, we have uh, Professor X, a.k.a. Charles Francis Xavier. He debuted in X-Men No. 1, September 1963, by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Professor X is a mutant genius telepath who convened the first class of X-Men at his school for gifted youngsters in Westchester. He lost the use of his legs when an alien named Lucifer dropped a rock on them. Uh, and he was in the Himalayas at the time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 this, uh, it goes without saying that he's led an inst- interesting life, that Professor X. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's been a long time since I read the stories of his, like, pre-X-Men years, but as I was mm-hmm. doing the research, I was like, wow, he, he did a lot of stuff, that guy, before he oh, yeah. uh, finally started the school. There's also uh, also at Marvel, the Lizard, a.k.a. Dr. Kurt Connors, debuted in Amazing Spider-Man number 6, 1963, by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Dr. Connors attempts to come up with a serum to restore his lost arm, and he does, but it turns him into a murderous lizard person in the process. Oh, well. Yeah, risk reward. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, we have Jericho, jo- uh, a.k.a. Joseph William Wilson. He debuted in Tales of the Teen Titans number 43, June 1984, by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. He's mute because he had his throat slashed. Yeah. <laughs> He's the mute son of uh, Slade Wilson, who can subsume anyone's consciousness and control them by locking eyes. And I, I guess currently they, they he like speaks through like a machine or something, so... It kind of renders his uh, disability moot, and uh, kind kind of renders his entire character. Uh, yeah, uh, and they might as well have just made a new dude. I mean, it's it's you know him being mute was a huge thing because he had to communicate. Yep. You know, uh, it didn't Signs he, he didn't know ASL, so it was always like yep. weird, like doing the best he could, doing a little charades. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, is he's in Teen Titans now, or 
He's, I think he's in the Deathstroke oh, book, Death but he was, Stroke, that's right. but he was part of that horrendous Lazarus contract. Yeah, yeah, we won't dwell no. on that. There's uh, one that Chris and I like a lot, Oracle, a.k.a. Barbara Gordon, debuted in Suicide Squad number 23, January 1989, by Kim Yale and John Ostrander. Former Batgirl Barbara Gordon is shot and paralyzed by the Joker, and she aids the Batman family and just about every other hero in the DC Universe's Oracle, providing intel, blueprints, plans as needed. She's sort of like the computer wizard who you know, stays in contact by uh, you know, walkie-talkie in your ear or whatever it is. Uh, currently, I don't think she even exists in DCU, but we could always hope. I really always hope to see her come back because I really feel like she's missing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have the Hornet, aka Eddie McDonough. He uh, debuted in Sling is Number Zero. This is December 1998 by Joe Harris, Todd DeZago, and Mike Waringo. Uh, Eddie has palsy in his right arm and constructed an armor, armored super suit to compensate for it. In part, anyway. Yeah. Also, to have crazy superpowers and stuff, but you know the. Uh, well, yeah. Well, Palsy had something to do with it. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, Echo, aka Maya Lopez, debuted in Daredevil Volume Two, Number Nine, December 1999. That was the Marvel Knights uh, imprint by David mm-hmm. Mack and Joe Casada. Born deaf and raised by the Kingpin, Echo has the ability to copy uh, anyone's movements and mannerisms perfectly after seeing them once. She's also, and did I mention she's deaf? Yeah, okay, born deaf, yeah. That's the, that's the handicap. Yes. Uh, she's also a world-class athlete and a martial arts fighter and all that good, you know, non-powered superhero stuff. Absolutely. We have uh, Komodo, a.k.a. Maladi Kasuma. She debuted in uh, Avengers The Initiative Number 1. This is June 9, 2007 by Dan Slott and Stefano Caselli. It's a double amputee that stole some of uh, Dr. Connor's lizard-making formula and uh, just happens to fight for the good guys. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think she is now, but she obviously was at the time on The Avengers. At the time. Uh, I'm not even sure if she's in Marvel now. Yeah, because the initiative is post-Civil War where they had to, uh, they were putting different super teams representing every state. Oh, all right. She, yeah. she, she was repping for hers. A, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, just <laughs> names came up there, yeah. Well, maybe she'll come back, but uh, if you have other names you'd like to add to the list, or if you have a problem with the names we've put on the list, or you want to talk about anything from this episode, or pick another comic book for a future mm-hmm. episode of Cosmic Treadmill... You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mill History, on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, I tell you every time, every week, you got to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. He does a new DC comic every single day of the week. Uh, God, you're past... What are you up to now? Almost up to 500 or? Almost. Uh, next, uh, by the time this comes out, I'll be just about to 500. And if you do follow Chris on Twitter, you'll find his uh, quarter and now dime box bins. I mean, goodness great. You know, next, <laughs> next you're going to be pulling comics out of the penny box or something. I'm looking for it, yeah. And uh, if you if you see those pictures, you're basically getting a preview of a, of a future post on Chris's and Very likely, yes. <laughs> so it really, when I see those, I'm like, oh boy, you know, I'm going to see a Bronze <laughs> Age Superboy and the Super and the Legion of Superheroes or, you know, Sugar and Spike, Bob Hope, all the, all the great stuff. Uh, it's really good. It's it's Thank you. great insight. It's got some comedy. It's got panels. It's got ads at the end. It's the next mm-hmm. best thing to actually reading the comic. And in some cases, it's better than reading the comic. But <laughs> that's, that's what that is. Uh, we want to thank again D-Ron Murphy for the suggestion for this comic. I wouldn't tear it up too much. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of a product of its time. But, sure. uh, you know, we, we enjoy reading them all. So keep, keep those suggestions coming. 
But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? Nope, that'll do it. Well, until next time, I want you to keep it on that treadmill devilishly. See ya. Hey, light up on the-